It was said that one of our former presidents, a gentleman by the name of Calvin Coolidge, had the nickname of Silent Cal. Uh, Silent Cal went by himself to church one Sunday morning, and when he got home, his wife asked him what the preacher had preached about. And true to his nickname, uh, Silent Cal said, Sin. And his wife, used to him by now, said, well, what did he say about it? That he was against it. (laughs) And of course we are. One of the uh, reasons that we are against it, and we'll talk about two this morning, is what you see on the screen in front of you. Sin does indeed tend to make you stupid. Uh, This is a sign which you see there, uh, that I have twice in my house in two different locations. This one uh, is in my office and den, and it is a personal reminder to me of the importance of godliness in lifestyle. This class could be subtitled, The Stupidity of Sin. One of the great Puritans, a man by the name of Ralph Venning, and he's one of the men who, by the way, went through the great ejection of 1662, Uh, he refers to the stupidity of sin. And if you're familiar with the book, you'll find this at pages 38 to 68. Uh, This was originally titled The Sin, The Plague of Plagues, when it was published in 1669. Uh, In addition, a couple of other secondary sources that you may want to look into Uh, Also by one of the great Puritans, Jeremiah Burroughs, The Evil of Evils. And another lesson on this by my colleague, Brad Clausen. You'll find it on the Grace Church website titled, Darkened in Understanding. So the concept has been around for quite a while. Uh, And the saying for almost as long, one of my sons thought it uh, uh, goes back to one of the great current Christian writers and speakers. I looked on Google. I could not find it. I did, however, find a blog by one of our own, Clint Archer. Some of you will remember Clint. Uh, He wrote a blog on it in 2011, titled this, and he wrote about the stupidity of some bank robbers. Uh, One of them, after robbing the bank, waited a while and then went back into the bank and tried to open up a savings account using the funds he had just taken. (laughs) Um, And of course, those of us uh, who've watched one particular movie will remember the line, stupid is as stupid does. Okay? Uh, There's a certain amount of humor to the topic. It is, however... Deadly serious, Uh, and when we resort to humor, it's not because we're taking the topic with any less of the gravity that's entitled to it. Uh, It is, however, sometimes the spoonful, the proverbial spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. So if I lapse into that momentarily from time to time, and I don't think I will, uh, that's the reason that is behind us. Now, uh, I see that there are a few children here. Let me make uh, clear, children are very welcome. This class, however, is intended for adults, intended for adults. 
uh, some of some parents, uh, and I'm related to some of them, don't want their children to be using the word stupid. Now, I understand that. I respect that. However, it is a concept that needs to be clearly stated, and sin will make you stupid. Uh, they tactfully said in the description of the class, less than intelligent. Amounts to the same thing. Uh, also, there may be a couple of topics in the course of the lesson, and it's going to uh, be interesting to see what has to get edited on the fly in view of the delay. Um, we may be talking about a few things that parents, you may not want your children to be hearing. I'll try to be as tactful and appropriate as I can in the expression, but I want you to be fair warned. Some of the uh, great Greek philosophers taught that virtue was knowledge, equating the two. That's not necessarily the case. Knowledge can, on occasion, lead to greater virtue, and we do see that in Scripture. However, the two are not necessarily equivalent And in fact, we see over the course of Scripture that your will and the actions that you take can greatly increase your wisdom, your knowledge, your grasp of spiritual truth, or they can decrease it. Hence the title, Sin Makes You Stupid. For a roadmap this morning, we're going to look at some key passages of Scripture We'll address the topic of how does sin make you stupid? How do we see that taking place? Is the converse true? And I will make the statement that yes, it is true. Godly living will tend to increase your cognitive ability. Uh, At the same time, Mike Riccardi is also teaching a session on truth. Godly living will increase your ability to understand truth. There's a human dilemma that results from this problem. What is the dilemma? When I heard uh, cases, we used to use the expression, and sometimes when you see people making unwise, stupid, sinful choices, all you could do was to shrug your shoulders and say, you can't help stupid. But, God in his mercy has helped stupid. And we are going to conclude with that. We're going to include, uh, conclude with the scripture's promise to help us get past the issue of sin making us stupid. We see God in his grace at work in ways we may not figure or fully understand. Uh, time permitting, and I don't know if that's going to happen at this point, Uh, we will move to uh, possibly a brief period of question and answer. I may enlist uh, some of the men that I see here that I know are uh, biblically astute uh, to give me some assistance in that. That's if and only if we get to the point uh, where we're able to get that far. So let's see what we can do. I'm going to be working off of two, not one, but two computers at the moment. All right, key texts. We're going to start uh, in two locations in the book of Titus. 
start with chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, and then we will move over to 2, chapter 2. So let's uh, move very quickly in this. Uh, By the way, gentlemen, uh, make yourself comfortable. It's warm. Relax. Uh, We've got some work to do. Titus 3, verse 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of our God and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the healing, the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. I'm having a technical difficulty. Renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." Sin makes you stupid. I've just lost my presenter notes, so I'm going to have to be talking off the cuff. Cough the cuff. How is it that that happens? First of all, it starts in Genesis chapter 3. In that chapter, we read of the fall of man. Eve sinned. Adam sinned. Adam's sin does something that we don't always realize, we don't always think. As a result of Adam's sin, our cognitive ability, our processing unit, our sensory organs are impaired. Man is nowhere near what he was uh, before the fall of Adam. Romans chapter 2, verses 15 through 16 tells us that man has the knowledge of God written on his mind and heart. As a result of the fall, as a result of the fall, man's knowledge of that law of God, in the words of John Calvin, is reduced to a shapeless ruin. Ephesians 4, 17 through 20 tells us that man's mind in its natural state 
is senseless. It's deprived of the knowledge of God. It is darkened. We don't fully understand how that is because that's all we've known. That's all we've ever seen. God in his mercy, however, has pointed this out to us, and we have to go forward with it. Now, there are some specific examples we see in Scripture. Idolatry is a sin that will help make us stupid. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 through 20, it talks about three different types of idol makers. Those who make idols out of iron. Those who make idols out of gold. And most notably, most significantly, the man who makes an idol out of wood. He chops down a tree, peels off the bark, lets it age for a while, He uses half of the wood to cook his meal and to heat his apartment. And the other half, he makes an idol. He bows down to it and he worships it. And he can't see the incongruity or the stupidity of that. And the scripture makes it very clear that the reason he can't is that God has hardened his understanding, his mind. There is at play two sets of actions at work. We will make actions that harden our heart, that darken our understanding, that increase our stupidity. And God, at times, in his justness, will confirm those and make, if that's the way we choose, that's the way he's going to allow. Second example up here, pride. Pride will tend to lead to stupidity. Nebuchadnezzar, best example probably in all of Scripture. Uh, In Daniel chapter 4, we read how Nebuchadnezzar was warned. He did not pay attention. Eventually, approximately a year later, he is stricken senseless. The word tells us that he actually lived as an animal, as a beast, eating grass for food. Most likely during that period of time, and it lasted seven years, uh, a man by the name of Daniel probably was running the uh, country of Babylon at that particular time and protecting the king uh, from those who would have uh, loved to take advantage of that opportunity to overthrow him. Years later in interacting with, I believe it's his grandson, uh, Belshazzar, Daniel points out that this happened when and precisely because Nebuchadnezzar's pride had lifted himself up in his own mind. Sin makes you stupid. Look at Nebuchadnezzar during that period of seven years. It's uh, probably harder uh, to filter out the examples uh, than it is to think of examples of specific sins. Drunkenness. Proverbs 23, 29 through 35 talks about a man who uh, is drunk. He is figuratively and literally feeling the impact. He's beaten. Uh, He is struck falls asleep, passes out, and he says, when I wake up, I'm going to go find another drink. 
Those of us who lived through the 70s uh, were familiar with, almost certainly, friends of ours, acquaintances of ours, and we use the expression blowing their mind on psychedelic drugs, lysergic acid, diethylamide, LSD. Uh, And in fact, literally, in some cases, taking a bad trip on medication led to an irreversible mental deterioration. Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Let me speak tactfully. Some of us uh, in a church that is healthy, we will always be able to say this. Some of us know what it is like to wake up on a morning uh, with a certain sense of self-loathing. What did I do last night? What was I thinking? After engaging in a period of physical intimacy, uh, either heterosexual or homosexual, that ultimately proves to be degrading and may have consequences that last far beyond what the individual was thinking uh, when most likely under inebriation, uh, they decided to depart and engage in certain activity over the evening. So sexual immorality can do this. Understand, when we engage in sexual immorality, uh, we are joining our bodies, bodies that Christ should control, uh, figuratively speaking, to a harlot. Okay, Probably no greater example of the two of these acting together exists than an individual uh, famous in the history of American criminal activity, Al Capone. Al Capone was, if you're not familiar with the name, uh, in charge of organized crime in Chicago during most of the prohibition. Uh, He was undoubtedly behind some of the most violent activities of the time, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre uh, and others. He was smart enough to run that operation. Uh, Interestingly, he was also smart enough to do so in a way that uh, allowed him to shield himself from uh, criminal prosecution. When he was eventually convicted, when he was eventually convicted, uh, they had to convict him on the grounds of tax evasion. They never did get him for what he'd really been doing. Why is he significant? When he passed away in 1947, his own physician found that due to cocaine damage, due to the impact of gonorrhea combined with syphilis, he had the mental ability of a 12-year-old. Severe dementia had resulted from a combination of intoxication and sexual immorality in this man's life. Careless and inflammatory communication. Uh, The ESV is particularly helpful at this point. Uh, Proverbs 18, 6, and 7. The phrase says, a fool's lips walk into a fight. You get the mental picture of the lips that uh, I believe it is one rock group uses with legs, and it literally walks into a fight. People tend to use inflammatory, unwise, insulting language. Contrary to what the Scripture says, 
during times of dispute and disagreement. And it's like tossing a lit match onto dry grass. Blows it up. Broken relationships within the family. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5 talks about the condition Paul tells Timothy will exist during the last days. Without family affection, some of the verses, verses use, without love. Tragically, and we've seen this even at Grace Church, there are families that have been destroyed. Destroyed because of sin, an inability, perhaps out of stupidity, perhaps out of an unrepentant heart, uh, to seek forgiveness. Grandparents that have not been able to see or get to know their grandchildren children that are unwilling to interact with their parents. And there is more by far of these situations than just one. Broken relationships within the family. What were we thinking? Lying. Lying leads to a loss of knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 6.5 talks about men who uh, seem to have been active in leadership within the church. They are proven to be false teachers, and the text indicates that over the course of time, they can lose what the text says. They can lose their knowledge that they once had of the working of God, the law of God in the mind and heart of man. On a broad general level, we see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. Paul denounces, he describes one of the state of natural man. They have chosen to exchange the truth of God for a lie. Uh, I spent a number of years working in the area of investment fraud. I've seen men actually go before news cameras, seen them on TV, uh, go before news cameras, they will adamantly tell you that what they were doing was true, legitimate, and honest. They can't tell the difference anymore. God gives men over at times to believe a lie rather than the truth. One of the things that is so stupid about this, sin tends to expose you. Sin exposes. A number of years ago, there was one particular website uh, that was dedicated to sexual immorality. Uh, I don't need to mention its name. Eventually, over the course of time, that website and its contents were leaked to the public. A number of clergymen, a number of pastors were found to have had their names on that particular website, including the son of one of the most prominent uh, godly evangelical pastors uh, active at the time in our country. Sin will expose you. Okay? Isaiah 59.12, our sins testify against us. It's as if we were in a court of law and they are testifying. 
The cover-up, the attempt to cover it up, also demonstrates a certain amount of stupidity. Some of us who lived through the uh, 70s remember a time when, uh, on behalf of a sitting president, there was a burglary, a burglary at a particular hotel known as Watergate in Washington, D.C. Okay? Uh, Probably could have been dismissed dispensed with, disregarded by a prompt, immediate uh, recognition that what had occurred had occurred, and we've taken an appropriate action to uh, prevent further actions of this sort. Uh, the presidency at the time, however, chose to try to do a cover-up. And the president, who was active at that time, resigned in disgrace. The cover-up, the stupidity of the cover-up, Sin degrades and dehumanizes man created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26, 27, twice tells us that man is created in the image of God, and with that, there is a certain dignity to man. Recently, during the COVID epidemic, I saw what was probably one of the greatest attacks on that dignity uh, in one particular country of the world, and we will not mention it. You may be able to guess it promptly. Uh, in an effort to avoid COVID infection, uh, men and women, in some cases, from a worldly perspective, intelligent, uh, were filmed smearing cow manure and cow urine pouring it on themselves, and smearing the manure on their bodies. It's growing out of a rejection of God. A man created in the image of God is smearing cow dung on himself. And you look at this and you go, what are you thinking? Anybody doubt that sin makes you stupid? All right, but it doesn't stop at that. It creates a pattern that will harden the heart. Uh, Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 7 tells us in no uncertain terms that we need to be very careful, we need to be very aware of a course of life that hardens itself to the Word of God, to the ministry of God, to your mind and to your heart. The illustration is that of a block of cement or concrete. Uh, Dr. MacArthur has used the expression, the same sun that softens wax will harden concrete. What does it do? It makes the concrete insensitive to touch, insensitive to any effort to impress upon it the truth of God. Stupidity leads to the wrath of abandonment. One of the key passages in... uh, Psalms, Psalms 81, verse 10 through 12, talks about God wanting to impress upon his people, and it refers back to uh, the wandering in the desert after the Exodus, but they would not remember what he had done. Over the course of time, that refusal to remember leads to what theologians refer to as the wrath of abandonment. God actually says, okay, you want to go that way? Have at it. Go for it. 
Ezekiel 20, verse 25, applies it to the legal world. The refusal to comply with and follow the moral law of God in a country. God says, okay, I gave them over to laws with which they could not live. And the tendency is to think that that means they could not comply with them. What it really is talking about, what it really means, God gives them over to laws that make life hazardous. And we've seen some of that in recent years in our own country. Finally, worst of all, sin can lead to self-deception. Sin can lead to self-deception. Twice in Scripture, Ephesians 5, 5 through 6, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, we read, don't be deceived. Individuals that practice certain conduct spelled out there. No matter how much they think they are justified, no matter how much they think they've been forgiven of their sins, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not let yourself be deceived. That sin that you engage in, thinking you are a believer, can cause you eventually to be self-deceived. Very serious stuff. Summing it all up, and I thought of this earlier this uh, summer uh, when we were watching a two-hour documentary, and the question was, what is a woman? (laughs) And you could also apply it to situations where people want to say, God, you made a mistake. I'm a woman trapped in the body of a man, or vice versa. And there were times that I wanted to engrave this on the walls uh, of the place that I was privileged to go to law school. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And sometimes we've unfortunately seen the truth of a statement that was realized in probably the first book of the Bible ever written, and that is, of course, the book of Judges, which says God at times makes fools of, excuse me, the book of Job. God makes fools, you've heard it, out of Judges. It can happen. Now, the contrary is also true. Godliness promotes wisdom. Godliness will promote wisdom. Proverbs 9, you're familiar with this undoubtedly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes, it is true that more we learn truth, the more our lives will demonstrate that. But underlying all of this, if the will wants to follow Christ, if the conduct is in a godly manner, somehow over the course of time, that is going to advance, it is going to propel and accelerate your grasp of godliness, your grasp of what is going on around you. Proverbs 28.5, those who seek the Lord understand all things. They may not have had the opportunity to go to college. They may not have had the opportunity to attend a graduate school. 
But the scripture tells us that over the course of time, those who seek the Lord, those whose lives demonstrate a pattern for truth, will develop a cognitive grasp that will allow them to see through when the emperor is wearing no clothes, when there is a certain level of sham within our society. Specific examples, probably one of the best at the outset. Uh, You're familiar with this passage. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, have been captured. They've been marched all the way from uh, Palestine over to Babylon. Uh, They've been screened and found to have sufficient capability uh, to be impressed into the service of the empire of Babylon. So they are required to go through a certain period of training. Part of that training involved a certain type of diet, which Daniel recognized in his friends was not conducive to health, and it was, in fact, contrary to the Word of God. They arranged with respect to be able to follow the law of their God. They went through a period of testing, and they were found, the text tells us in Scripture, to be far superior to all of the other people with whom they were going through that training. Godliness will promote ability. It will promote wisdom. I've mentioned this already. A desire to do God's will, John 7, 17, tells us will lead to a knowledge of the deity of Christ. Don't underestimate the significance of that particular statement from our Lord. A desire to do the will of God will inevitably lead someone to know and grasp and understand the deity of Christ. What happens if that isn't present? There is not a desire to know and understand the will of God at this point. There will be a commitment to truth. I was originally phrasing this, there'll be a commitment to and a passion for truth. And I found that even the phrase passion for truth has been corrupted and uh, corrupted by people with whom we would have no theological agreement. But there will be a commitment to truth if, if, if we are committed to the lordship of the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, our lives will demonstrate a passion for truth. And as we pursue truth, our intelligence, our wisdom, will inevitably increase. You have up there uh, a tremendous verse that we've recently become aware of. Dr. MacArthur pointed this out in one of our elders' meetings. 2 Corinthians 13.8, for we can do Nothing against the truth. There is a passion for truthfulness in the lives of all true believers. One great example of this took place in 1576. A man by the name of Edmund Grindall was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He served under Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I was very concerned that a practice that was taking place in the church and we would call them pastor's conferences, shepherd's conferences, preaching conferences, uh, would have a detrimental 
result in her power over her country. She commanded Archbishop Grindall to shut down these preaching conferences. Uh, In a letter that has been preserved for history, he's very gracious, he's very calm, he's very respectful, but he's very adamant that he is not going to do so. He paid dearly for that. Uh, He was in house arrest for a number of years. Uh, He was not allowed to return to serving in a church until he was nearly blind and shortly before his death. The significance for that in this passage in his statement to the queen, respectfully declining to obey her instruction, he made the statement, we can do nothing against the truth. He cited this particular passage. There will be a passion for truth uh, in the lives of those who are godly, and that in and of itself will lead to further growth and wisdom. Biblical fellowship grows from and leads to knowledge. Some of you uh, will have the uh, ESV. Some of you will have the NASB or the Legacy Standard Bible. If you look at verse 6 of Philemon, in those different versions, you'll get a much different read. Some of the versions indicate that because of our knowledge we will have proper fellowship. And that's true. When we know what Christ has done for us, when we know what other believers have been to us, we will act in a manner that is consistent with that. Okay? The other versions also will point out, however, that true biblical fellowship will lead to greater knowledge of the gospel. What took place in this passage uh, demonstrates this. You had a runaway slave, a man by the name of Onesimus. Uh, He had undoubtedly stolen from his master, Philemon. He goes to Rome, and somehow in God's sovereignty, he interacts and connects with uh, Paul and eventually becomes a believer. Knowing what had taken place, Paul says, okay, we can't just leave it as this. Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter that's reserved, preserved in Scripture. And he makes the comment, if I mean anything to you, I will take care of whatever he has wronged you by. Remember, however, you owe me, he says, in essence, your spiritual life because he had faithfully ministered to Philemon. Philemon got it. Uh, he could have had Onesimus executed immediately and upon the spot. But he did not. History tells us that Onesimus went on to become a great leader within the church in Ephesus, eventually becoming, after uh, Timothy had passed away, the pastor of that church. And something like 40 to 50 years after the incident described in Philemon, he himself was martyred for his faithfulness. So yes, biblical fellowship will grow from and it will also lead to a level of knowledge. You want to see what forgiveness looks like? Look at our pastor, Onesimus. Could be said within the church at Ephesus at the time. 
2 Peter 1, 5 through 6, and verses 3, 14 through 18, we see again repeatedly the idea, live in a godly manner, and you will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be vigilant over your life, and you will grow in a grasp of what is right, what is wise, and what is holy. Now, we understand this, and we agree with most of this, and yet we realize that there is another problem here. I know this. I'd like to apply this. And yet there's a problem. The second reason we are against sin, remember a Silent Cal's statement, uh, we're against sin. The second reason that we're talking about today is that sin enslaves. Sin makes an addict. We speak of addiction to drugs. We speak of addiction at times to sex. What we're really talking about is the fact that, as Titus puts it, we are enslaved to various lusts. No question about it. That is the natural state of man. He realizes what he's doing is stupid. She understands that. And yet there's a compulsion to continue with the same behavior that leads to self-destruction and self-loathing. The human dilemma, we are captive to stupidity, captive to what we know to be dumb, and yet we are responsible for God, for what we do. We don't understand how that can coincide, but it does. We are experiencing the consequences, but we are, di- we are addicted to our sin. And yet God has provided a solution back in Titus. And I'm glad I've got my Bible in front of me because I'm going to have to make sure I don't blow this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, this is back in Titus chapter 3, verse 4, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He saves us. Sometimes we use the uh, expression in our culture uh, without a realization of the incredible greatness of the concept. In justification, we who could not do anything to earn God's favor based on the work of Christ, have become new creations. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and new things have come. 
2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might in him be made the righteousness of God. There is an incredible change that takes place at the moment of true regeneration, true salvation. Uh, We don't fully understand that. And a part of that change An aspect of that change is that it begins to reverse the mental deterioration that has taken place at the time of the fall and that we have caused to accelerate by our own stupid and sinful choices over the course of our life. He saves us. Never overlook the grandeur, the wonder of that particular statement. He teaches us. He teaches us. Titus 2:11 For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. What's this next word? Verse 12, training, teaching us as a schoolmaster to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Three aspects of that instruction. The written word. John Calvin pointed out, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, because of the fall, man's innate knowledge of and grasp of the law of God written on his mind and heart has been reduced to a shapeless ruin. But God in his grace has given us the written word. All scripture is inspired by God that the man of God may be adequate, complete, lacking nothing, and equipped for every good work. Amos chapter 4 verse 13 tells us that God, through the scripture, discloses his thoughts to us. Some of you are old enough to remember a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer, Uh, Schaefer did uh, some tremendous work in the uh, 70s helping believers who were struggling with uh, intellectual honesty and what they were hearing in church to connect the two. Schaefer points out that one thing we see about the God of the Bible is that he teaches propositional truth. What we know, what we understand by God can be expressed in propositional statements slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. We see that again and again and again. The Scripture gives us propositional truth. God teaches us through his written word. He teaches us through examples. And the best examples of that are in his written word. You want to see a stupid individual? Look at people in the Word of God who continued to indulge in sin and see what happened to them. We talked about Nebuchadnezzar. We could also talk about Herod. Herod, in the book of Acts, allows himself in the amphitheater at Caesarea Maritime uh, to be given the adulation and praise of a god. Scripture says because he did not give the glory to God, he was stricken with a fatal disease. He died a few short days thereafter. 
And one of the uh, other aspects, God and his grace. And uh, one of my sons pointed this out to me just last evening, uh, and I'm very grateful for it. God and his grace sometimes will teach us and instruct us, and this demonstrates the grace of God to the nth degree, by allowing us to look back and reflect upon our sin prior to the time that we became believers. Paul himself says, I was the chief of sinners. But God demonstrated his grace throughout that as I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. God grants his grace, and sometimes his teaching will allow us to look back on what we were before we were in Christ and realize how stupid that was. What it did, we're sometimes ashamed to talk about it, and there's nothing wrong about that. But never let it keep us from learning and growing in our understanding of the grace of God. So God teaches us at times from our sin. We're not to continue in it to try to get further knowledge. In Romans, God's, uh, Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound still more? Responding to that. And he reacts with an expression of absolute utter horror. May genetai, may it never, ever even be thought of. Okay? But we learn and we progress. He renews our minds. The mind that was damaged by the fall, the mind that we have done our best to corrupt and impair by ungodly, unwise choices before we've become a believer, God renews. It starts immediately and overnight at the time of regeneration. It happens over the course of of our life in Christ. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but let yourself be changed by the renewing of your mind. This is an ongoing duty and responsibility that we have. Colossians 3, 16 through 17. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Make it something that is habitually part of your life. The reason for that is so God can continue to renew our minds. We also, we talk in terms of uh, sanctification. Sanctification, the word ultimately means uh, setting apart, setting apart a particular vessel. It's kind of like the uh, dishes, the good silverware, that we save for special family dinners. We set it apart. We save it. God wants to take his people and set them apart for works for himself. Okay? He purifies us. He makes sure that it's clean. He sets it apart. There are two aspects of this. And the reason that I'm mentioning this is that some of you who have been believers for a while know the struggle that it can still cause sin in your lives after you've become a believer. Romans tells us in chapter 7, I want to do things different than I'm doing, but I find myself not doing what I want to do. I find myself doing what I don't. 
This becomes an issue of sanctification, purification and setting apart. It requires to be dealt with. It requires the renewing of our minds. It requires encouragement and support from those around us. But there is a very real practical aspect to sanctification. Positionally, you've been sanctified at the time of regeneration. Practically speaking, that sanctification is going to be taking place from the moment you become a believer until the moment you walk into the presence of the resurrected Christ. So, uh, this is God's solution. As I said earlier, some of us used to say you can't help stupid. God has found a way and has demonstrated that in the book of his Bible. We, talked, we looked at uh, the passages in Titus. Pray for me as I'm starting to run out of a little, spe- a little steam and I need to finish this uh, well. Uh, so bear with me just a little bit longer. We've looked at the fact that sin does have a detrimental impact on our ability to make wise choices. It makes you stupid. We've looked at the fact that Scripture also makes very clear that godliness will lead to increasing wisdom in the course of a life. And we understand the fact that this causes a tremendous problem for sinners. A leopard cannot change his spots, as Jeremiah tells us. But God has provided a solution. He saves us. He trains us, he renews our minds, and he purifies and sanctifies us. And I pray that that would be the reality, the experiential reality that all of us are aware of and will understand. Looking at the clock, our time has nearly ended. We'll close in prayer. Uh, If you have any questions, I'll be up here for a few minutes more. If you think you've heard any uh, incredible heresy, uh, I'll be able to do my best to respond to that statement. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I do pray for our people here at Grace Church that we would understand the importance of godly living as an increase in our ability to understand the things of God. And yet, Lord, we also would further understand the importance of renewing our minds on the things of God to advance and promote godly and wise living. Father, I pray that your hand of blessing would rest upon each and every individual here. Father, I pray that you would be glorified and exalted above all things. We love you and we trust you. Amen. You are dismissed.